Happy Saturday. It's January 28th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your editors here at Airmail trying to figure out what on earth is happening in this Idaho murder case. I'm sorry, Michael. I think we need to get right to it. No preamble today. We have news to discuss. No preamble, except to say we've got a great show for you today. Howard Bloom, as Ashi mentioned, who has been doing outstanding reporting for Airmail on the homicide of four college students in Idaho that shocked the country, is joining us to share the inside story of what happened when the father of the accused killer, Brian Koberger, joined his son in that notorious white Hyundai for a cross-country drive from Idaho to the family home in Pennsylvania and how two dozen police officers lying in wait for them made their move to capture Koberger. Then, if you think you've heard the last of Boris Johnson, think again. Stuart Heritage will join us from the UK with the latest on how the former prime minister is eager to grab the spotlight and it seems, loads of cash. And finally, we'll be talking dirty, specifically in the style of the ancient Romans. We'll be joined by writer Harry Mount, who has a fun report on the obscene graffiti to be found in Pompeii. Ashley? Listen up, kids. Lots of ways to impress your Latin teacher here. Lots of ways to speak dirty and no one knows what you're talking about, but go for it. Someone's going to love it, whether it's your spouse or your Latin teacher. We're an educational program, Michael. We're here for the people. Exactly. Maybe we should just do it with subtitles next time. Latin subtitles added in. But yeah, you were saying, I think we should just get Howard right here, right? Yeah, it's the story that's transfixed the nation as well as the world, and certainly the world of airmail. And Howard's here to tell us all about it. He's an incredible investigative reporter and journalist. He's the author of several books, uh, including the Edgar Award winning American Lightning, Terror Mystery, The Birth of Hollywood and the Crime of the Century. He is currently writing a book about these murders for HarperCollins, and he is here to tell us exactly what's going on. Welcome, Howard. Howard, it's an incredible piece, and we can't wait to get into it with you. So let's just get right in. Okay, how many words is the story? Well, this is the second of two pieces so far. I might be writing more. This piece goes on for about, oh, I would say 7,500 words. Well, this particular one is riveting. It focuses on the way that the alleged killer was apprehended and chased across the country during a cross-country drive with his father. Take us back to the beginning. How did we get here? Well, on November 13th last year, four students at the University of Idaho were brutally and horrifically slashed to death. The assailant seemed to vanish into thin air in the sense that he had left no clues there was nothing taken. It wasn't a robbery. It wasn't a sexual assault. And there was no blood in the streets leaving a trail that the police could follow. It was a perplexing mystery. And the mystery seemed to drag on for a total of seven weeks. All the time while the mystery was dragging on, the police, which is the local Moscow, Idaho police, plus the FBI, plus the Idaho State Police, were working behind the scenes. And they had a couple of clues, small clues, but they were able to leverage them. One clue was that they had surveillance video of a car zipping through the neighborhood at about 4 a.m., approximately the time of the murders. Murders took place between 4 and 4.25 a.m., according to the police. And this car was a white Hyundai Elantra, either between the years of 2011 to 2016. They had this bit of information. They use this bit of information to track down white Hyundai Elantras. There were about 22,000 in the region. One of them belonged to a graduate student at Washington State University. Now, Washington State University is just a 15-minute drive from the University of Idaho and the murder house. 
And the owner of this car was a, a graduate student in criminology, of all things, called Brian Koberger. And they started focusing very surreptitiously, covertly on Kohlberger. They pulled his phone records and they were able to see that he was in the area of the house where the murders took place on at least a dozen occasions. And they had another startling discovery from the night of the murders. There were six women, young women, students living in this house. Two of them, or three of them rather, were murdered, one along with her boyfriend. Two other of the young women survived, and one of them had left her room after hearing a noise at approximately a little after 4 a.m. and saw a man walking through the house dressed in black. He had a mask on that covered his bit of his nose and his mouth, but not his eyes or his eyebrows. And she noticed that he had bushy eyebrows. This clue, bushy eyebrows, became significant. The police were able to look at the license of Brian Kohlberger, and they saw that he had bushy eyebrows. So, Howard, let's get into the car, as it were, and let's take a drive. Kohlberger then comes up at Christmas time. He wants to go home. His father flies from Pennsylvania and says, we're going to make the drive back to the family home for Christmas time. What happens on that drive, and how do the law enforcement officials start to sort of close a noose around him? Well, this road trip, which I imagine in the father's mind started out as this bonding experience between a father and what he could, over the years has been a very troubled son, a son who's been addicted to heroin and had to go into rehab, a son who ostensibly is putting his life back on track. He's, he's now in graduate school going for his doctorate. The father came out as a sort of kindness, I believe, to the son to make this trek across America. And as soon as they get into this white Hyundai Elantra car that police all across the nation are on the have been alerted to be on the lookout for, strange things start happening. They leave on December 13th, and right away, the son says he has a new route to take. The shortest distance, of course, as any high school geometry kid will tell you, is between two points. They take a more indirect route. It's allegedly to avoid snow, and the father goes along with this. They set out across America, and all the time while they're going along, the FBI, from a distance, is covertly following them. They don't want to lose them. This is their chief suspect. At this point, they don't have all the enough pieces in the puzzles to fit it all together, but they realize this is our man and we can't lose him. As they're doing this, Brian Koberger, who is the suspect, is driving along. He sees red and blue flashing lights in his rearview mirror. It's an Indiana state deputy coming to pull him over to the side. He doesn't know, neither do the FBI know, why this traffic stop is occurring. Did they notice the car? Are they going to make an arrest? Is Koberger going to do a run like OJ? Is there going to even be perhaps a shootout? No one knows. What happens, though, next is the police deputy comes over, and it's more like a Abbott and Costello routine. Koberger tries, the son tries to explain that they're driving to get Thai food, and they seem to be going across countries simply to get Thai food, which makes no sense. Deputy is a bit perplexed. Father then interjects that they're from WSU, which means Washington State University. WSU means nothing to this deputy. He's totally confused. That might be from Mars. As they try to explain where that they go to Washington State University, one's a student, one's a father. They're driving home for Christmas to the Poconos in 
Pennsylvania, but still nothing happens. And he lets them go with just a warning not to tailgate. That's what they were doing. The FBI watching all this breathes a sigh of relief. The white Hyundai starts off again. Nine minutes later, they're pulled over once again by an Indiana state trooper. And they go through this, basically the same routine. And once again, the FBI doesn't know if this is going to be the shootout, if the Indiana trooper has noticed that this car is a car of interest in a murder investigation. But once again, Koberger is allowed to go back on the road. There's no ticket given. And on December 16th, the father and son, after this very confusing and arguably pregnant, interesting conversations road trip, arrives back at their home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. Why do I say interesting conversations? One can speculate, and again, this is only speculation, that the father and son sitting in a, the front seat of a Hyundai Elantra, almost shoulder to shoulder, for three long, tedious days, had to have been talking about the Idaho student murders. I want to get to like how they then bring in this dragnet and arrest them, and a guy who, as you say, in some ways is undone by his eyebrows, right? Well, what happens while the, the Koberger father and son family gather for Christmas? The FBI is on their case, and so are now the cases in the hands of the Pennsylvania state troopers. And they are doing a surveillance of the house. They see Koberger going to a garage, meticulously cleaning his car while he's wearing surgical gloves. And they also get a key piece of evidence. This is what is you referred to before as the great trash robbery. That's what some of the people at, in Troop N or the state police refer to it with both admiration and a bit of humor. They go into, in the middle of the night, Koberger's trash bin at the house in Pennsylvania, and they get out material that they can trace to the father. They can determine the father's DNA. They use this DNA to compare to a speck of DNA that was left on a knife sheath at the murder house, on the button of this sheath. And it proves beyond, they, the authorities claim, scientific doubt that the DNA on the knife sheet is the biological relation of the DNA that they took from the garbage. This is the final piece in the puzzle of information that the authorities need. They can now go arrest Brian Koberger. So now, Howard, now we've got Koberger. They brought him back to Idaho to face his fate. But this is where I really want to drill down because I think you've got a fantastic conclusion to this week's story where you talk about there's a lot of evidence here, but there's also a troubling thing in the court system known as bad facts, and which I'd love to you to explain and the quote unquote bad facts that make this case not necessarily a slam dunk, right? Well, bad facts is basically the argument that what a prosecutor says is true doesn't necessarily seem quite that valid, quite that sort of an objective reality to a defense attorney. And Koberger's defense attorney can, as this case proceeds to trial, if it proceeds to trial, make a very convincing case that it's going to be hard to prove to a jury that he is guilty, that they can't have reasonable doubt. For example, there's the DNA that matches with the father and the son on the button of the knife sheath. Well, this is what is called touch DNA. It's DNA left by a finger or a hand. It's not blood DNA. The exactitude of this match is not as strong as the prosecutors would like to make out. They can be 
court cases have proven time after time after time that there can be a large amount of reasonable doubt for touch DNA. Another item is the cell phone tower mapping that puts them in the area of the murder house on the night and on 12 different other occasions. Well, this cell phone tower data is not precise. It can put him in the area within 12 to 15 miles. And in a little town like Moscow, that's a large distance. It's not the same as putting him precisely at the crime scene. And on in the affidavit that the police prosecutors already revealed, they also impugn their own cell phone data. On one date, they say, according to the information we have from the cell phone data, Koberger was supposed to be in the area of the murder house. I think it's on November 15th. Well, we don't think that's accurate. So they're impugning their own data. If they don't believe it, why should a jury believe it? Also, they haven't found the knife. There's no murder weapon yet. And without a murder weapon, it's going to be really hard to tie Koberger to the case. But perhaps the largest hurdle that the opposition or the prosecution will have to face is why. Why did Koberger allegedly commit this crime? What is his motive? And up to now, they have not revealed a motive. As you note in your story, they may have that card up their sleeve. They're not going to obviously tip their hand to what they believe the motive is. As you note in your story, you're also kind of at this moment a little increasingly convinced that they may never find a motive and or the murder weapon, which would in the hands of a good defense lawyer is cause for concern among what that he could probably win this case for him. Yes, I think you're right. Will they find the murder weapon? Well, as I relate in the story, I go to the big sporting goods store right on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. You walk into the store and it's like you're walking into an armory. There are rolled racks of rifles on the wall and there are two gleaming display cases of big knives, including K-bar knives, like the long-bladed knife that was the murder weapon. I finally make my way to the manager and I speak with him and I say, well, do you know Brian Koberger? Possible to search your records to see if he used a credit card or wrote a check or made a purchase for a knife. And the guy says, well, I'm not going to do that for you. It'll take too long. And then he says, but what's really interesting to me, and he says this, not I, the police have never come here to ask to search those records. So I wonder how hard or how inventively the police are looking for the murder weapon to find this knife. But then we come to the motive. And I don't think we will ever find a motive when we think about why that's logical, that makes sense to you or I. The best we can hope for, I think, is sort of motive, not as logic, but as reason, as a sort of explanation for why this happened. Here's how I see it playing out. My thoughts keep on coming back to a video that the police had of the murder house two months before the murder, where there's a party going on. You see all these young, pretty, handsome kids having the time of their lives. Police have come to answer a noise complaint. There's six packs of beers, lots of other alcoholic drinks there, Trulies. And the kids just look great, like they're having the time of their lives. This is what youth and college should be about. And I'm reminded of, of something William Blake wrote, one of his many aphorisms, exuberance is beauty. And I can see someone lurking in the shadows, looking at this exuberance, this ebullience, this beauty, and feeling that for his life, 
will always be in the shadows, cut off from this, and this will never be long, belong to him. And if he can't have it, then he wants to do something about it. And this sort of hell of unsatisfied emotion leads eventually to horrific deeds. That's as close as I can get to a murder. I think that's powerfully said, Howard. As powerful as your story this week, we said at the beginning, an impressive, unbelievable feat of reporting and assembling of facts and turning into a riveting narrative. So really grateful to you for making time today and bringing your expertise and insights to us all on the show today. And thank you for the kind words, and I look forward to the next installment, too. Get back to work. See you soon. Thank you, Howard. All right. Well, Michael, if you had any plans to sleep tonight, you're going to have to find another preoccupation. No, and I don't like horror films and scary stuff. So, yeah. But if you're looking for other sketchy characters, Stuart Heritage is here. He's not the sketchy character, but he's got a story on one Boris Johnson, right? Oh, Bojo. Ah, That's why we love him is he just keeps coming back from the dead time after time. Okay. Stu is a writer at large for Airmail. He has gotten Botox in the name of journalism, and he also writes for several prestigious UK publications like The Guardian. Welcome, Stu. Okay, Stu Heritage. Stu, I have bad news for you. We thought Boris was out and we wouldn't hear as much from him, but it turns out this character is still making news left and right. Boris, we just can't quit him. That might be the subject of your memoir, but that's a story for another day. All right, Stu, what's he gotten up to this time? Well, okay, so it's become apparent that Boris Johnson, who isn't even our most recent ex-Prime Minister, we live in such a strange age that he was, he's two Prime Ministers ago and he's still causing trouble. Turns out that he, while he was Prime Minister in 2020, he accepted a loan for 800000 pounds from a Canadian millionaire, but it was facilitated by a man who very quickly afterwards became the chairman of the BBC, which is a role that the government appoints. That sounds rather curious. Do you think that the two developments were connected? I mean, Boris Johnson in a vet in like in a really annoyingly Boris Johnson-y way, he said it was 100% ding-dang untrue. That's a direct quote, a very direct Boris Johnson quote, that there was any conflict of interest. But the guy, the chairman, He's apologised. He's ordered an investigation into his own behaviour. And he's hired a crisis communication firm to try and keep his job throughout, which doesn't... If I was entirely innocent of anything, that I don't think I would necessarily do any of those three things. So he's still in the position at the top of the BBC... And where does this leave us with Boris? Well, I mean, he has been wanting to sort of have a comeback when during the last leadership campaign. Yeah, the last one, the one that Rishi Sunak won. He made this big sort of grand comeback that was shot down. It just sort of seems like this is he cannot escape his own scandals. Even this far removed from power, things are still coming out about the things that allegedly he did wrong. Famous last words, but I think he's probably done as a political force now because this is, it seems like such a clear conflict of interest. Let's get to the money. Let's get to the money. Let's follow the money because he also seems to be a man who, whether he is in office or now out of office, has a nose for money and likes to collect money from donors and other people. So what's behind the latest, as you point out in your story also, like he sought loans and bailouts worth hundreds of thousands of pounds from different sketchy people. Where does all that lead him as well? Well, so he has a history of just like, yeah, like so in the pizza, just accepting money. He refurbished his quarters in 10 Downing Street with gold wallpaper that cost £800 a roll. And to do that at first, he was trying to get a conservative donor to stump up the cost, which I think was over £50,000 until that was made public, at which point he kind of begrudgingly paid for it himself. He tried to do the same thing. He wanted to get a treehouse made for his son, which cost 
over a hundred thousand pounds and he was trying to do the same thing with the same donor he was just sort of hits him up anytime he wants anything and he always seems to sort of be struggling with money throughout his time in office there were always stories that the job of being prime minister didn't pay enough to fund his lifestyle and he was broke whether or not that's because he got divorced recently in a huge huge expensive divorce it could be that it might be child support he has the official number is at least seven children nobody exactly knows how many babies he's fathered might be seven might be more that's got to take a lump out of your income so yeah I don't know. And he's also, he's a man who, when he wrote a column for the Daily Telegraph, which paid him a quarter of a million pounds a year, which at the time he described that figure as chicken feed. Well, I mean, that's a treehouse and a half a year he could buy with that. So you bring up his skill as a writer. And as you note also in your story, he's reportedly been paid a big advance by HarperCollins to write his memoir, right? Do we know how much money that is and when the story behind that memoir? The figure is apparently high six figures or low seven figures to write it, which is, they're all very, Prime Minister memoirs are by nature very dry. I feel like he gets that big figure for two reasons. Firstly, because he can write, he's a writer by trade. And secondly, because his time in office was just such a long train wreck (laughs) of a thing. He had like global crises that he had to deal with. Any prime minister would have to do. But then just his own personal failings that he has to, I mean, I don't know if he'll mention any of them. I'd love it if he did. I think that would be the fairest, most accurate way to approach it. If he mentioned Partygate, the suitcases full of booze and everything, and even the affairs that people have said he's had, if he mentioned all of that, I mean, yeah, that's we're talking sort of probably figures, sales figures that would rival Prince Harry's. If I were a more creative conspiracist, you might also think that, hey, if I'm the prime minister and I'm a writer and I know I'm going to write a memoir, I'm going to do really dramatic, crazy things while I'm in office so I have more material to write about rather than just do boring things that no one really cares about. Just a theory. That is, I mean, my God, imagine if that was true. Imagine if this was all to lead up to the publication of a book that people would be interested in for three weeks as it was serialized in the newspaper. Stranger things have happened. Stu, what's your bet? Do you think the Shakespeare book is ever actually going to happen or not? I don't know. He seems to be, well, probably not. He was paid an awful lot of half a million pounds for it, and it was meant to be released in 2016. He'd previously written a Churchill biography, which kind of, he's obsessed with Churchill, so that sort of makes sense. And he was going to follow up with a Shakespeare book, but then he became prime minister, which precluded him from doing it. And there's Dominic Cummings, his advisor, who's just become a very sort of leaky vessel telling stories about everything that happened during Johnson's sort of time as prime minister, said that in sort of amid the crises, the most sort of critical time of COVID, he kept sort of trying to sneak off and write some of his Shakespeare book, which doesn't seem like the greatest use of his time. So it might still be on the go. I don't know. Maybe that was his lockdown project. Everybody needed a lockdown project, right? Yeah, I mean, Michael and I made bread. He worked on the biography instead of saving the country. What? We all had to do what we had to do. All right, Stu, I wish I could say this is the last we would be hearing from you on the matter of Boris Johnson, but something tells me this guy has more runway. So we will check back in with you again soon, no doubt. And in the meantime, thank you so much. I look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Stu. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. It makes me think Boris Johnson, London. I can't wait to get to our next guest, Harry Mount, because he's based in London. He's a classicist and he's 
discovered how the ancient Romans using Latin spoke dirty and insulted each other. And he is the editor of The Oldie, which if you've never read it, I highly recommend. It's a favorite of us here at Airmail. Ashley, I wish I could introduce Harry in Latin, but no such luck for me. How about you? I took Latin in middle school, Michael, but very little of it stuck. I do remember Et tu Brute, then Fall Caesar, but that's about it. Thankfully, Harry is here to illuminate us and give us some more handy catchphrases to use in everyday life. Welcome, Harry. Harry, you have brought us some breaking news, except it's not that breaking. It's 2000 years old. There's some recent discoveries made that have shocked not only classicists, but modern day classic lovers as well. It turns out that the ancients were just as dirty as those of us living today, if not even more so. So can you tell us exactly what's going on here? Yeah, I think they've always been a lot dirtier than us and much more prominently and in public. So the latest news that is in Pompeii, they've renovated a famous villa, the House of the Vettii, including some fantastically pornographic frescoes. I don't know how rude I can be on airmail. Go as rude as you want, and I will bleep you. I don't know what is Latin for bleeping, but we'll do that. Let it all flow, Harry. Right, bleepus, yep. The most famous fresco there is one of Priapus, the Greek god of fertility, who gives us the word priapic. And this fantastically... Beautiful, very pornographic fresco shows him with what you might call his huge member virilis balanced on a scale opposite a bag of money. Not quite sure. There's no words in it what it's saying, but one is as important or more important than the other. And all over Pompeii, you'll find this fantastically rude, either graffiti or inscriptions. So there's a famous brothel in Pompeii, and on the walls there it says the inscription is Lucilla ex corpore lucrum faciebat, which means Lucilla made money from her body. And next door on the wall in the same brothel, someone's written sum tua iris acibus duo, which means I'm yours for two bronze coins, which is about two glasses of wine. Seems quite a reasonable price. How many times have you been to uh, Pompeii? Three times. And does your eye sort of alight on these special little treasures or do you go seeking them out or they just sort of, how do you find them? I don't know if you've been there, but both Pompeii and Herculaneum, they're so relatively big that there's room even for a lot of tourists, but the busiest bits of Pompeii are the rude frescoes. There's another one which has a lots of pictures of different versions of the sexual act, which they originally thought was a brothel and someone would go in and say, I want two of those and, and one of those. But actually, they now think it was just wall decoration. But that's the busiest place in the whole of Pompeii. So I'm not the only obsessive pornographer in town. I like to think of you as maybe not the most obsessive, but maybe the classiest pornographer in town. Oh, well, that's very, very kind of you. It's really interesting because we like to think of the Romans as being very highbrow. And I was just in New York last week and went to the Met Galleries and what survives there are fantastic statues of Roman emperors and their wives. So people wrongly think that the Romans didn't bet on the 230 on Ben-Hur in the Circus Maximus or didn't fall in love, didn't have lustful feelings. And some of the graffiti is, in fact, incredibly beautiful. There's another line which is in the house of Pinarius Cerealis in Pompeii, which says, Marcellus Prinestinam Amat et non curata. Marcellus loves Prinestina, but she doesn't care for him. We've all been in that situation. They're high and lowbrow, 
like the rest of us. So it's really good to remember that Latin isn't just this highfalutin language for emperors. Ron spoke it, obviously. It's a great point. And I think that's, as you sort of touched on just a moment ago, that it's the, it's the power of going to Pompeii. You see an entire world. It's not just what the Metropolitan Museum wants you to see. It's the yeah. classics of the capital C, but it's people living their lives, being funny, having fun. And just as it is in 2023, the high and the low as well. And it's often the low that informs the culture, really, really. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the great details of Pompeii and Herculaneum is in those lovely stone roads. There are deep grooves scored away, cart tracks over hundreds of years, because we think of Vesuvius exploding in 79 AD and don't remember that Pompeii was there for hundreds of years before. And so you don't just freeze life then in 79 AD, you freeze hundreds and hundreds of years of accretions of history. There is also incredible beauty, obviously, at Pompeii. I had never seen before until I was in the Met last week that incredible inside of a villa from just outside Herculaneum, I think it is, which is incredibly beautiful and in great condition, but absolutely beautiful frescoes with an imaginary view showing Polyphemus, the Cyclops, who was blinded by Odysseus. So it is this incredible mixture of high and low, and you get it all, obviously, because they're frozen in a moment of time. So there's no, it wasn't like the security guards were watching you at the Met, making sure you didn't scrawl some graffiti inside. <laughs> well, I thought I could have, because it was, it was very empty last week. What was it? Tuesday. Yeah, I could have probably got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned also, they recently discovered, it wasn't just in Pompeii, but in Turkey, there was some Roman site there. I can't pronounce it. Antioch ad Cranum. Got it right. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're constantly finding things. In fact, just this today in the newspapers, they found a new incredible Roman road by the Barca Caracalla in Rome. But this one is yeah, in Turkey. And these are, again, very, very graphic. And it shows Narcissus and Ganymede admiring their own, as I refer to it, bulging naked assets, is the way I would call it. But So again, that, that was very, very public. So it actually it is much more people write rude graffiti in London and New York, but they don't do a very, very beautiful mosaic of naked pictures. I think they were, the Romans, actually much, much more open about these things than we are. I just have to ask, you're such a great Latinist. Is there a favorite insult or that you might have in, in Latin for your own everyday dealings with the world? Well, there's a great one, which is in, again, in Pompeii. They're mostly in Pompeii, but some survive in Rome. But there's a brilliant one in the Thermopylium, which is the snack bar in Pompeii. And that says, Nikia Kinaide Kakato. And again, if airmail viewers and readers can put up with the obscenity, that means Nikias, the name of somebody, you catamite shitter which is pretty rude, isn't it? And I think that was probably intended to be rude in 79 AD. That wasn't a friendly greeting. And I think we always like to think people in the past were a bit more serious and a bit more primitive than, than we are. But I think they're, as you say, they're, they're identical. Some of them are funny, some of them are rude, some of them are terrible, some of them are good. Nothing really changes. No, no. Anyway, it's the point of this book I've written is trying to do the, the great lines from Virgil and Catullus and Horace, but it's also trying to show everyday life in, in, in little chunks of Latin, never more than two or three lines and always with a translation. And hopefully, whether you've done some Latin or none, you can enjoy it. And the title of the book, once again, is Et tu Brute, the best Latin lines ever. Et tu Brute was, in theory, the last words of Julius Caesar when he was stabbed by Brutus, meaning even you, Brutus. But actually, it's such a famous line, I use it as the title, but actually, the real last words were in Greek, because Roman emperors actually spoke Greek. That was the grand posh language. So his last words were, in fact, kai su technon, which means to, also to Brutus, but say, meaning 
even you or you too, my child. But it's funny how it got changed into the Latin because that's what we associate with emperors. But posh Romans like Julius Caesar and Brutus would have spoken Greek to each other. Well, Harry, thanks for making time today. Fantastic. Bye-bye. Really nice to chat to you. Bye, Harry. Take care. Bye-bye. Now that we've dealt with the heady stuff, tis the weekend. We need a little bit of R&R. Do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? I do. This week, the Oscar nominations came out and Paul Meskel, the fast-rising 26-year-old actor who you might know best for starring in the limited series Normal People, got nominated for his role in a film that came out earlier this year, After Sun, and I highly recommend it. Meskel, who seems poised to become the first big star of Gen Z, plays a divorced father taking vacation with his nine-year-old daughter. It's a quiet, lovely, poignant, powerful film, and Meskel is terrific. And if he had any doubt, Meskel doesn't have a big career ahead of him. He's also been selected to star in Ridley Scott's sequel to Gladiator. But this movie is called After Sun, and it is streaming now on Apple TV. And you, Ashley? Have you seen The Fablemans? I have seen The Fablemans. Yes, I have. Can we talk about it? You mean the Academy Award nominated Fablemans? Sure. So this is Steven Spielberg's love letter to his childhood. Although maybe it's not quite a love letter. Maybe it's a bit more critical than that. But it's in theaters now. I paid $20 for it to watch it on Amazon, but I was at a German weight loss spa. That's a story for another day. And I had nothing to do. So... I actually thought it was fantastic. It was probably 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes too long, but I still enjoyed every minute of it. What did you think? Here's what I don't understand about this movie. All right. Steven Spielberg. I love Steven Spielberg. I've loved him since I was a boy. I love him for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I love him for E.T. I love him for Schindler's List. I love him for everything he does just about, right? And what's fascinating, what I went into this movie thinking, like, here's a guy who, as I said, from E.T., which is about Lost Boy, searching for a connection to even Close Encounters, Lost man slash boy man child looking for a connection and this is going to be the story of his life and Spielberg who makes me cry all the time in a theater I felt nothing in this movie I felt nothing I it was so bloodless it's just such a disconnect for me there were some beautiful moments in it but I was surprised at how much I didn't feel coming out of it when I usually come out of a Spielberg film feeling the feels and feeling so much that's a fascinating take I have a hypothesis I don't think Michelle Williams was very effective in this movie. I love her style, but as an actress, I find her occasionally hard to watch. And in this movie, she struck me as so awkward. She's such a physical actress. Like the way she moves is very interesting. She's very fluid. You get the sense that she was trained in dance. But the way that she speaks and behaves, there's a certain amount of distance that she creates between herself and the other characters. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I just find, I found it slightly difficult to empathize with her. I thought what I thought was the most beautiful about it was sort of the visual poetry that's Spielberg used to capture the 1960s. And I mean, what's not to love? Like my favorite scene was the film that the protagonist, young Sammy, young Spielberg, made about his high school. He documented the senior class when they skipped a day of school and went to the beach. And it was so brilliant and beautiful and moving and magnetic and a sort of a microcosm for the whole movie. But there might have been some problems with it. But fundamentally, I really enjoyed it. And But then again, Michael, I don't know. I could have been hallucinating due to calorie restriction. I don't know, but I really liked it. And thank you for indulging me on this topic. More on this soon. Will you please read us out? We 
with pleasure. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. Our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julia Vitelli, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.